0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and in case you use one of our Pew Bibles, you can find where we're going to be on page 882. I mentioned last week that we have reached the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly ministry, and so from this point on, a lot is going to happen in a relatively short amount of time, and in a similar way, a lot is going to have to happen in a relatively short amount of time with us, uh, because my intention is for us to cover the resurrection on Easter, and there's still a lot of stuff for us to get through in order to make it on time. So, as we go forward, we may not be able to delve into quite the amount of detail that we normally do. We invite you to take advantage of the Q&A times on Sunday evenings. If you've got further questions or inquiries, uh, but this morning, everything begins to unravel in perfect fulfillment of God's plan to redeem the world through Jesus. And so we're in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 24. Luke writes, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And So last week, Judas agreed to betray Jesus in exchange for money, and then Jesus uh, explained the significance of his coming death as the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover and for the purpose of the establishing the new covenant, and he did so as he instituted the Lord's Supper. So this has to be one of the most profound moments in all of human history. So of course, the apostles decide that it's the perfect time to argue about which of them is the most important, right? As we pick up here in in verse 24, Luke tells us that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And and it could be that the the buzz over which of the apostles was going to betray Jesus from verse 23 last week naturally evolved uh, into a discussion over which of them was uh, the best apostle, the most prominent. But for whatever reason, the apostles began to argue with one another. In response, Jesus corrects them, and he corrects them by saying, "The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors." In other words, those who are outside of God's people equate authority with power and luxury. Right? Leaders who are in charge generally act like everyone else is there to make their lives easier, not vice versa. And also what Jesus refers to here as a benefactor refers to people in the ancient world who would donate large sums of money or who would perform great acts of public service. But it wasn't because they truly cared about helping other people. It was because by doing these things, their own popularity grew. Their names would be inscribed on buildings and monuments and statues of them would be built as a permanent record of all of the wonderful things they had done. And so the reality is that all of their grand gestures of service were ultimately self-serving. They did what they did because it was in their own best interest. But Jesus insists in verse 26 that it is not to be that way among his followers, Instead, he says that the greatest among his people are those who become like the youngest, those who would be at the bottom of the social social totem pole. And he says that true leaders are those who serve others. In verse 27, he uses himself as an example when he points out that the one who reclines at a table is greater than the one who serves, right? A waiter is not greater than the customer, The the customer is greater than the waiter. And yet Jesus, who reclines at the head of the table, has functioned as a servant. Jesus is by far the greatest, most important person of all time. And yet he has lived his life out of genuine love for others, as a life of service to help others. And so we see here that, that he expects his own disciples to reflect that in their lives. From God's perspective, true greatness isn't about who can climb the highest up the ladder or or who can draw the most attention to themselves, which is how this world tends to measure greatness. From God's perspective, true greatness is about who uses their gifts and abilities to make life better for other people, even potentially at their own expense. And this is important, I think, because as Americans... We are conditioned from birth to to get everything we can get out of life and and to look out for ourselves first. But Jesus reminds us that discipleship requires us to be others oriented, always looking for ways that we can serve, even if that means sacrificing for the well-being of others. And then in verse 28, Jesus commends the apostles for their faithfulness to him in all of the ups and downs of his ministry over the previous three years. If you think about it, certainly the apostles have experienced some incredible things by following Jesus, but they've also experienced rejection. Or they have sacrificed physical and financial security, and they found themselves on the wrong side of those that they had always looked to ...as a source for spiritual leadership, which had to be disorienting and and difficult for them. And so Jesus promises them in verse 29 that they have been granted to eat and drink at his table... ...in his coming kingdom, and to sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that last part is, is kind of hard to understand. It's not entirely clear what Jesus means. It would appear that some type of leadership role is reserved for the apostles in eternity... But whatever the specifics are, the point is that the greatest honor, far beyond any kind of recognition that you could receive in this earthly life, has already been reserved for them in heaven. The implication being that they really don't need to be concerned about being seen as great or important here and now. So we see that the apostles have not responded particularly well to Jesus' teaching about himself at the Last Supper. Unfortunately, things are only going to get worse, as we'll see as we pick up again, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, "'Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers.'" Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And so picking up again in verse 31, Jesus turned to Peter and delivers a distressing message. He tells him that Satan is seeking to sift the apostles like wheat. Your translation may have a footnote at the bottom that, that clarifies that the you here is actually plural, so it's not referring just to Peter, but to all of the apostles. And you may remember that sifting was the process of separating the kernel of grain from the husk on the outside that that covered it, and you you would do that by hitting it repeatedly on the ground with a stick, and then throwing it up into the air so that the kernel would fall back to the ground while the chaff blew away in the wind. It's a very forceful process, and used as an image here, it indicates that the apostles are about to experience a severely disorienting trial. Something that is going to leave them confused and afraid, with Satan's goal being to separate them from Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus reassures Peter in verse 32 that he has prayed for him specifically, that his faith will not fail completely. And so, when he has turned again, when he comes back, Jesus calls him to strengthen his brothers, meaning the other apostles. And so Jesus predicts here that, that Peter and the apostles are going to fail, but it won't be final. Satan is about to win a temporary battle, but there is going to be redemption and restoration in the end. Well, in response, and, and, and Peter rejects any notion that he would ever fail Jesus, and he insists that he is ready to be faithful to Jesus even if it means going to prison or even if it means being killed. In a very sober moment, Jesus tells Peter plainly in verse 34 that forget about going to prison, forget about being killed, before this night is over, before the the rooster crows, he will have denied even knowing him three separate times. In this coming attack by Satan, Peter is going to find that he's not as strong as he thinks he is. And then in verse 35, Jesus reminds the apostles of how he sent them out back in chapter 9 to to preach the message of the kingdom and to perform miracles, to demonstrate that, that message. And you may remember that he didn't allow them to take anything with them. They were to depend on God's provision through the generosity of those who were willing to receive them. But we see here that's not going to be the case anymore. All right, from now on, Jesus tells the, the disciples that they're going to need to make provisions for themselves and to stay vigilant against opposition. And the change comes down to how people perceive Jesus. You see, in, in verse 37, he says that what is written about him must be fulfilled, specifically that he was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 53, and specifically verse 12 which speaks of the, the future suffering servant of the Lord who is going to be rejected and killed, but whose death ultimately serves as a, as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sin of God's people. And Jesus affirms here that he is the fulfillment of that. Right, but now that Jesus is going to be crucified, which was a, a death reserved for only the worst of criminals, Much of the goodwill that the disciples have enjoyed among the common people is is going to become rejection and persecution. And so instead of expecting a warm welcome from place to place, the disciples now need to make sure they have what they need to survive. And this this last section is a little confusing. I, I think that as Jesus talks here, he is speaking more in generalities, but the apostles seem to be taking him literally at face value with the details, right? They produce a couple of swords, and Jesus says what the ESV translates as, it is enough. But Jesus is going to make it clear momentarily that he's not actually expecting them to use swords to fight with, and so I think the apostles are missing his point, as they so often do, And Jesus just wants them to understand that they aren't going to be getting many more welcomes from now on. They need to be prepared for that. And in light of that, I think what Jesus means at the end of verse 38 is something more along the lines of enough. I don't have any more time to talk about this. Jesus can sense that the time is coming quickly. And so he needs to get away one last time to pray before he faces his greatest trial. And so we'll pick up again beginning in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So we've already seen previously that Jesus and the disciples have been spending their nights on the Mount of Olives, and the other Gospels identified the specific location on the Mount of Olives as a place known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And now that the, the Passover meal is over, Jesus leads them back to their usual spot. And when they arrive, Jesus tells the disciples to pray. To pray that they may not enter into temptation. Again, Satan is looking to sift them. And so they need to pray for the strength to endure. Then Jesus goes on a little bit further by himself to pray alone. And as he prays, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, And I think under the circumstances, most all of us understand what Jesus is saying here. But, but I don't think we always understand why he says it the way that he does. What does a cup have to do with anything? Well, it's, it's helpful for us to understand that drinking a cup is commonly used in the Old Testament as an image of receiving God's judgment. And so just as a couple of examples, in Jeremiah 25, 15, We read, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Psalm 75, verse 8, we read, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Is it receiving a cup from the Lord is often an image used of receiving his judgment. And, and in keeping with that imagery here, Jesus understands that he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sin of the world so that you and I don't have to. And, and as this, the full weight of that begins to close in on him in his humanity, he asks to avoid that if at all possible. Nevertheless, as much as he would like to not experience what he is about to experience, his greater desire is for God's will to be done. And so he asks that not his will, but the Father's be done. And you know, we, we talk a lot about the importance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf for our salvation. But it's just as important that we also understand his active obedience on our behalf as well. You see, what qualifies Jesus to serve as our substitute is that he was perfect. Jesus never sinned. He always obeyed God. And there's there's such a contrast here, if if you can can see it. What causes humanity to fall into sin in the first place is that in a garden— Adam, as the created son of God, rejects God's will and chooses his own will. But now, in a garden, Jesus, as the incarnate son of God, resists temptation, and he accepts God's will over his own. And because he does that, you and I can be saved from our sin by placing our faith in what he has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Going back to the story, we we can only imagine that the the weight of this moment is taking a mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual toll on Jesus that is beyond our ability to understand. And so as he prays, Luke tells us in verse 43 that an angel comes from heaven to strengthen Jesus. And Luke doesn't specify what the angel does but, but having been strengthened by this angel, Jesus continues to pray. In this most difficult moment, God the Father has, has sent him help, as he so often does to us, or for us, when we come to the end of our own ropes in life. And even having been strengthened by this angel, Luke describes Jesus as being in agony. He is in agony in this moment. And as he continues to pray, his focus is so strong. And the pressure he is feeling is so intense that his sweat begins to fall to the ground like great drops of blood. Then in verse 45, Jesus gets up and goes back to the disciples. Luke tells us that they were sleeping from sorrow, which is an interesting phrase, sleeping from sorrow. I don't know if you've ever been in a prolonged argument with somebody or if you've been completely overwhelmed by a major situation that you didn't know what to do about. Uh, But if you have, then you may have experienced that it can be physically and emotionally and mentally draining. And I know that I have had a a moment or two in life where I just wanted to curl up in a ball and go to sleep. It was just draining. And that seems to be what's going on here with the disciples. they, They started off on this mountaintop as Jesus entered into Jerusalem in celebration, and and he put the religious leaders in their place. But now he's acting really weird, and and he's talking about betrayal and danger and death, and and they don't know what to do with all that, and it's nighttime now anyway, and so it all combines to overwhelm them, and they fall asleep. But as Jesus wakes them up, he rebukes them. If they had any grasp of the, the significance of this moment, then they wouldn't be able to sleep. And he calls them again to pray. Unfortunately, time has run out. While Jesus is still talking, a crowd shows up being led by Judas. And Judas approaches Jesus, and he goes to kiss him, and, which apparently was for the purpose of, of identifying Jesus, because it's dark, and it could be difficult to, to distinguish who is who. And Jesus asks him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Do you have the gumption to commit the greatest act of of treachery by by using a gesture that is, is designed to communicate love and respect to a superior? And in verse 49, the apostles are wide awake now that they can see that that something's about to go down. This is a mob that has violent intentions. And so they square up and they ask Jesus if he he wants them to fight for him. And before Jesus has an opportunity to answer, one of the disciples, who John reveals in in his account is Peter, he charges in and takes a swing and he cuts off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, apparently he went in for the kill and just barely missed. And so now things are about to get completely out of control, and so Jesus calls out, no more of this. And he, he makes it clear that he does not intend to resist. And then, in the midst of everything that is happening in this moment, he reaches out and he heals the ear of the high priest's servant. What? What? Like this, this man has come to arrest him unjustly and lead him to his death. And Jesus still takes the opportunity to heal him. And then Jesus challenges the religious leaders on their own cowardice. He, he calls them on the fact that he's been in the temple every single day in broad daylight teaching, and yet they never did anything. And, and now they come out with a posse under the cover of darkness to take him like they would a violent criminal. And so it has begun. Jesus has been betrayed and arrested, but things are going to get even worse before they get better, as we'll find out when we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 54. It says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little while later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, And wept bitterly. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And so, despite performing one last miracle, the crowd of of religious leaders and their cronies arrest Jesus and, and lead him away to the house of the high priest. Luke tells us that Peter was following behind at a distance. Now, as the high priest, a wealthy man, uh, the high priest would have a courtyard in in the middle of his estate with the house kind of built around it on the outside. And so as everyone gets there, they build a fire to stay warm in the courtyard. And Luke tells us that, that Peter slips in among the crowd. And as they sit there by the fire... A servant girl can see his face in the light of the fire, and she calls him out as one of Jesus' disciples. So everyone turns and looks at Peter, and Peter denies it. I'm I'm not one of his disciples. I don't know him. And then later in verse 58, someone else recognizes Peter and, and calls him out. And again, Peter denies it. And then again, about an hour later, someone either picks up on Peter's accent or or perhaps something about the way that he's dressed and identifies him as being a Galilean and again calls him out for being one of Jesus' disciples. Why else would a Galilean be here right now unless he is also with Jesus, who is from Galilee? And once again, Peter insists that he has no idea what these people are talking about. Luke tells us that immediately... A rooster crows. Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and Peter realizes what just happened. And as he comes to grips with what he has done, he is overcome with emotion, and he goes out from the high priest's house, and he weeps bitterly. Then in verses 63 through 65, Luke records that the men who are holding Jesus in custody begin to mock him and beat him. They begin to play a game where they blindfold Jesus, and someone hits him, and then they ask him to use his supernatural knowledge to prophesy and reveal the identity of the attacker. And so Jesus is being tortured, and he has been abandoned by the people who were closest to him. The things are just getting started, as we'll see when we come back again next week so in our passage this morning, the events leading to Jesus' death begin to unfold as Judas betrays Jesus, and as he is arrested and taken to the high priest's house, where he will be tried by the Jewish Supreme Court. In this moment, everything is spiraling out of control. And yet at the same time, everything is going exactly according to plan. Do you see that? Jesus has already predicted that he is going to have to die. He has talked about how it's necessary for him to be rejected and to suffer. And even here in verse 37, he speaks of how Scripture must be fulfilled. And so while the disciples probably feel like their world is crashing down around them, the reality is that this is exactly how God has designed for things to go. And so as we read this, I think it's a good time for us to be reminded that, that so often in our lives, circumstances feel like they are spinning out of control. And, and in truth, they are often out of our control. But God's sovereignty and his providential control over all things provide an anchor for our hearts that with the truth that nothing ever goes ultimately outside of his plan. And so while we may be struggling in a given moment, we may not understand what's happening or why it's happening, we can always trust and know that God is accomplishing his perfect plans in the world. And if we hang in, eventually we'll see how. So while this is an incredibly dark moment, we as the readers of the story have an advantage of knowing that it's not the end of the story, And even in the midst of all this, Jesus gives us in this passage a couple of instructions that should apply to our lives. As he accomplishes his plan for our lives, we are to look for opportunities to serve others, and we need to constantly pray that we not enter into temptation. So first of all, our lives are to be characterized by serving, and so it's worth asking the question. Do you go through life primarily focused on yourself and having your needs met, or do you actively look for how you can use your talents and your gifts and your abilities and resources and time to serve others and to make their lives better? Is it the, the example of Jesus is our standard. Even as people come at him here, he still takes the opportunity to heal one of them. And so consider, how can I be more intentional about looking for opportunities to bless others? God's sovereignty over the circumstances in our life frees us to be able to do this, because we know ultimately he is going to take care of us, so we can look to take care of others. Perhaps you could pick up one of the resources of the week this morning about how to serve the church, and read through that to think more about it. Then, secondly, we need to pray consistently that we not enter into temptation. Now, I think that if we're honest, most all of us are more like Peter than we would like to admit, intending to overestimate our own abilities. Instead of praying, we try to live the Christian life in our own strength. And so we end up experiencing defeat and discouragement as Satan and the world and our own sinful hearts trip us up. Or or sometimes, I'll overhear people talking, or I'll see them posting on social media about what they're going to do if our country ever does this, or if Christianity ever becomes illegal and, and Christians begin to get persecuted. And in light of our text, I think that the Lord would say to us, stop rehearsing your heroic stand in your mind and pray. Pray that you not enter into temptation. Because when the rubber meets the road, we may well find that it is more difficult to be faithful than it is in our imaginations. Again, if Jesus, being divine, needed to pray, then how much more so do we? Now, Already we can see certain leaders and and churches and even denominations caving in on biblical truth under relatively little cultural pressure. And so we need to be realistic about who we are and what we are truly capable of and pray for the Lord to give us strength to remain faithful no matter what. We need to pray. If nothing else, I would invite you to join us on Sunday nights as we gather together corporately as a church family to pray together. Our scripture this morning reminds us that in the good and the bad and in the ugly, God is always in control And two of the primary characteristics of Christians in light of that should be a commitment to serving others and a commitment to prayer. And so as the Lord works out his perfect plans in our lives, may we always look to be a blessing to one another, and let's pray for the strength to remain faithful to him. Let's pray together.